Yes, thank you, Jan. Didn't sound like I was on. Yes, on? Oh, good. Okay, great. Um, This morning, I'm bringing you uh, a word that I strongly feel God has laid on my heart. Much as Jan has experienced in her preparation for Pakistan, I too have had a really tough week. And so uh, I'm bringing you this word uh, in, in faithfulness to what I think God has told me, but I'm bringing it you in, in great humbleness and laying it before you for you to decide whether the word is right or not. So if this is not for you and it's not right, then uh, I uh, hope that you will find something more edifying to think about for the next 20 minutes or so. Um, the, the theme that we're fulfilling at the moment is where is our confidence uh, under the overall heading of discovering joy. Um, and there will be some joy in what I have to say, but there will also be some things that I personally have found very hard and some of you may find very hard as well. So as I prepared for the sermon, uh, it, didn't, uh, it wasn't a particularly cheerful start because I came across uh, one of the most depressing things I've read in a long time. Uh, it was on an online publication for, the, uh, for millennials. Those are people who were born between about 1982 and 2000. This publication was called Elite Daily. Um, and it, uh, it, it speaks to where this generation uh, are at. And it seems to me that this generation, the sort of people born just, to, just before and around the turn of the century, uh, the turn of the millennium, are pretty downbeat about the state of the world, their place in it, and their future hopes uh, or lack of. And I would include my own two children in that um, can be very pessimistic about the future of the world. Now, this article was actually written in 2013 by a chap called Paul Hudson. And he said he was a philosopher and an entrepreneur. And what he wrote made me very sad. And this is I'm just going to share with you the introduction to his article, which was titled, Why You Should Never Depend on Anyone But Yourself. This is what he wrote. The fact is that our world exists within a sad reality. We are completely alone in this world and anyone that tells you otherwise is simply lying to you or is too ignorant to understand what it is they are truly saying. You yourself are the only person that you can and ought to rely on. You may say to yourself that you have friends that are there to support you and that you have, that you have family that is there to help you when you need help. And this may be true, but it does not change the fact that when push comes to shove and the end is nigh, you are alone completely. As the saying goes, you came into this world alone and you'll depart from it alone. The sooner you come to accept this statement the sooner you can begin to rely on yourself for all that it is that you need from life. It breaks your heart to think this stuff is being peddled. It goes on at much length in a similar nihilistic vein. And before you say maybe Elite Daily is a bit of a niche publication, it actually claims to have over 70 million readers worldwide And at one time, it was ranked at the seventh most shared um, um, public site on Facebook, and it was the 14th most popular U.S. news entity. So this stuff is being peddled to a wide audience, 
However, it is owned by the Daily Mail Group, so that might say something. Be that as it may, be that as it may, if this is the philosophy of the millennial generation, our young adults who will soon be taking leadership roles in commerce, in industry, in health and in education, even in politics, then those of us who have got a different view to the one that they're putting forward, we've got an uphill struggle to be heard, haven't we? And you know what? There is a different view to this I need to be self-sufficient because there's no one else I can trust view. And that's what today's Bible reading is going to tell us anyway. Now this was the daily of the first century, if you like. And this time, the thing we're going to hear was written not by Paul Hudson, self-styled philosopher and entrepreneur, millennial, but by Paul the Apostle. And Mike is going to represent Paul using the words from the message version as Paul wrote to the Philippian church. Mike, or Paul. Okay, let's have another look at this draft. Here are we? Mail, drafts, Philippians. Good. Be glad in God. That's about it, friends. I don't mind repeating what I've written in earlier letters, and I hope you don't mind hearing it again. Better safe than sorry. So here goes. Steer clear of the barking dogs, those religious busybodies, all bark and no bite. All they're interested in is appearances. Knife-happy circumcisers, that's what I call them. The real believers are those led by the Spirit of God to carry out this ministry, filling the air with Christ's praise as we do it. We couldn't carry this off by our own efforts, and we know it, even though we can list what some might consider impressive credentials. You know my pedigree. Legitimate birth, circumcised on the eighth day, an Israelite from the elite tribe of Benjamin, a strict and a devout adherent to God's law, a fiery defender of the purity of my religion, even to the point of persecuting the church, a meticulous observer of everything set down in God's law book. The very credentials these people are waving around as something special, I'm tearing up and throwing out with the trash, along with everything I used to take credit for. And why? Because of Christ. Yes, everything I once considered so important is now gone from my life. Compared with the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus, my master, firsthand, everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant. Dog dung. I've dumped it all on the trash in order that I might embrace Christ and be embraced by him. I didn't want some inferior kind of righteousness that depends on following a set of rules. Not when I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting Christ, God's righteousness. I've dumped all the inferior stuff in order to know Christ personally experience his resurrection power, partner with him in his suffering, and go all the way with him 
even to death. If there was any way of getting in on the resurrection of the body, of the life, I wanted to do it. That's good. Thank you, God. Send. Brilliant. Thanks, Mike. It's really good sometimes to hear it in a fresh version, isn't it? Brings it all to life. But if you want to follow uh, what I'll be looking at a bit more closely in the church Bibles, it's on page 1180, 1180, Philippians 3, verses 1 to 11. Now, what I want to uh, argue uh, today is that Paul Hudson's view, the elite daily chap, although it's no doubt shared by many, is not the only view. I want to put the counter-argument that we are definitely not alone and that far from putting our trust in our own fallible human selves, we should put our trust in the one who made us. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one. A God who knows everything, who is everywhere and who is all-powerful. I want to put it to you that trusting in our own gifts and abilities or in our own wealth, trusting in those things, is pride with a capital P. And in the Bible, pride is a sin. Paul is offering us a better way. Dependence on God, a dependence on him which gives us freedom from a self-dependency. And that self-dependency only leaves us feeling alone and insecure and stressed. Now I wonder if you noticed pride, uh, the word pride in in the reading, in the the message version that, that Mike read to us, or even if you have scanned quickly down the passage, you won't find it there. If you look for it, actually, you won't. So why am I talking about pride? Well, pride is definitely present in Paul's account of who he once was before he met Christ. He talks of his confidence in the flesh, in other words, in human nature, in himself, and he lists these reasons why he put his confidence in himself in verses 4 to 6. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. His words simply ooze pride, don't you think? Can't you just hear it? This is what he once was. With proud people, it's all about me, me, me. Look at me. Look at what I've achieved. I don't need anyone or anything else. That's what proud people are like. Now, I quickly want to say, most of those things that Paul mentions, they, are, they weren't bad in themselves, okay? It was his prideful reliance on them that was the problem. And they certainly didn't provide what most of us are seeking. Fulfillment. Peace. Joy, security, self-esteem. So it is fine to use our God-given gifts and abilities to make sure that our lives are on a, a settled financial footing. It is fine to do good works in and for the community. So don't hear that that's, uh, you know, I'm saying those are not good things. But it's just not fine to put our faith and our trust in them as the basis for our self-identity or the basis for our purpose and joy. Because if we do... Where does that leave space for God? 
Psalm 10, verse 4, suggests that pride of this sort pushes God right out of the picture. In his pride, the wicked does not seek the Lord. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. How many times do we, do I, do things in our own strength? That's pride. How many times do we think we can do things better than anyone else? Because if anyone else does it, it won't be right. We know best. Should be done my way. That's pride. How many times do we rely on who we are and what we do for our standing in the community instead of on God? Pride again. How regularly do we sit under good, godly teaching in this church or elsewhere, because we don't have a monopoly on that? How many times do we sit under good, godly teaching and we think to ourselves, I'm okay, that doesn't apply to me. We listen, but we don't understand and we don't see the need to respond to the challenge that God's word always, always brings us. And that my dear friends, is more pride. Pride's a blind spot. It can be right in front of us and we don't see it. It's sneaky, it's subtle, and it's hidden. It can even, dare I say it, hide itself in false humility. False humility says, I'm rubbish, I'm such a mess. It's actually an inverted kind of pride sometimes in how unworthy we are. And that's a direct rejection of what God has already done for us in Jesus. In his love, he's already broken the chains of lies like that, which we might have been living under for years, condemnation put on us by other people or ourselves. But God has broken that lie, and it is simply not true that we are unworthy anymore. In Christ we are wholly worthy. I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry to bring you such a strong message this morning. But as I said, I really believe this is what God has laid my heart to share with you, for you to hear today. And some of that pride is not just personal pride. It can be pride of us as a church. We're good at this. We've got things sorted. We have, thank God, a lovely large congregation, a big church family who care for one another. We must be careful that we don't put pride in that, but our pride and our boasting is in the Lord. This is a critical time for the church. This is a critical time for St. Paul's and the church nationally. Most of you will have read or heard the statistics last week that said that continued um, attendance on a Sunday continues to decline We don't seem to have a message that the world out there wants to hear. And the only way, the only way, dear brothers and sisters, that things can change is to start with ourselves. Pride in ourselves masks the things of God. We want to be good witnesses to our friends and families, don't we? We do. I'm sure we do. But if all we're showing is ourselves, then what of Jesus is going to come through to them? 
It's not all bad news today, though, you'll be pleased to hear. And I don't want to lay a massive guilt trip on you. That, that wouldn't be right and it wouldn't be fair. Even though pride is detestable to God, we are not. We are not detestable to God. He loves us. He wants to rescue us from any sense of being alone. He wants to rescue us from the sense that we have no one to turn to or that we have to impress others to feel good about ourselves and things like that. And I don't want us to become under condemnation here because we all, all of us, struggle with this. Me as much, if not more than any of you. It's a particular thing, isn't it, for those in leadership in the church to be doing things in their own strength, on their own gifts and abilities. So I am not speaking to you, I am speaking with you. We kind of slip in and out of a state of pride all the time, I guess. And it's just really about being more aware of it when it happens. Let's go back to what Paul wrote Verses 7 to 9, he put this, Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I consider them garbage. Message version, dog dung. It's a really strong word. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Now there's no pride in that, is there? It's a reminder of the gains that are to be had when we put our faith in God. And the Greek word for faith in that passage, the word pistis, it means a a much bigger thing than than we might just imagine from the word faith. Faith, belief, trust, faithfulness, all those things. In other words, to believe in the gospel, to have faith in the gospel, is to put our trust in God, not in ourselves. We're just going to see a very short video clip here. Uh, it's a kind of vox pop uh, of people uh, out on the streets, mostly millennials, actually, that generation, uh, asking the question who they put their trust in. It's just about 30 seconds, um, and let's see what their answers were. Who do you put your trust in? Trust my family, my closest friends. Family and friends. My parents. My mother and God. My family. Mostly my family, but also a few close friends. I don't really trust a lot of politicians. No. No. No, not really. Yeah, I believe. Yes. Trust them too. No. Oh, no. I guess you can trust clergy. Yeah. You can't. No. Yes. shame of it. God didn't really enter into that, did he? And that was a Christian, um, a Christian polling uh, company, Odyssey. Um, but they weren't actually totally holding on to Paul Hudson's view of relying on themselves, but most were still putting forward sort of family and friends. Um, occasionally, uh, some of them trusted the clergy, and that was a little bit of a relief, but others didn't. So they were putting, they weren't thinking about something bigger than themselves. They were putting their trust in fallible people. Paul reminds the Philippians and us in verse 3 that we who serve God, who boast in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh, the flesh meaning our human natures, our human selves. So when we receive and accept the grace of God in Christ, we're called to rely on God and nothing or no one else. The gospel of elite daily, of the millennials of the world, is a dangerous, false 
gospel of self. As Christians, we can counter it. We can, not just in, uh, in the way we are and what we do, but in our very selves as we allow Jesus to be revealed in and through us. Proverbs 3, 5 to 6 tells us this. I bet many of you are familiar with it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Lean not on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. So what might it look like to trust and rely on God in these days? It could be costly for us as individuals and as a church when we do this. Let's have some examples. There are people, one in our church family, for whom trusting in God has meant that they've had to flee their home and their country and they can never go back for danger of their life. For others, it's meant that people in their family reject them or submit them to relentless undermining comments like, you don't believe in that rubbish, do you? Really hard to live with that all the time. For some, it's meant that they need to work in an environment where the Christian faith is sneered at or is not acceptable. Do you remember the recent case of Ashes, the Northern Ireland bakers, who stood up for what they believed in and went to law and actually were told that their views were not acceptable and they couldn't reject something iced on a cake which was contrary to their beliefs. What about recently, the rising prominence of Halloween and the pressure on our children to take part in something which is at its base fundamentally evil and dark and they're being asked to celebrate it by pressure of the world. What about something simple like behaviour in the workplace? A personal story here. Um, Quite a few years back, I uh, I was working as a teacher and in one particular staff room at a school, not not one in Camberley, one overseas, I worked. uh, There was a really poisonous atmosphere in the staff room of bitching and doing people down and, uh, and just constant. And actually, for me, it would have been really enjoyable to join in. Because some of those people they were bitching about, I didn't like either. And I found them extremely annoying. But I had to be a killjoy in their eyes. I had to try and put a counter view. And in the end, when they wouldn't stop, I felt I had to go and take, uh, sit somewhere else at my break times. And that's not easy if you want to be liked like I do. And if you want a coffee as well. But I really felt from God I could not be party to that, even by sitting in the same room as it. Very trivial example, I admit. But it can be hard. It can be hard. But Paul tells the Philippians of the joy he's experienced by renouncing all that stuff that he thought was important. And he now realizes it's rubbish. And those things he mistakenly thought that God wanted of him. They were things that were preventing him from receiving the gift and the freedom that knowing and loving Christ brings us. And do you know, once he did that, he became somebody who relied totally on God. Someone whose most precious possession was his relationship with Jesus. He'd accessed a source of continual joy, even in prison, which is where he was when he wrote the letter, as we now know. 
because everything in his life, absolutely everything, had found its meaning in Christ. Paul went from, as it says on the screen, from being self-centered to centered on God. And for him, that was the life-transforming experience. The joy of the Lord became his strength instead of his own strength being what he was relying on. So how should we respond to this teaching of Paul's? I would like us to ask ourselves a few questions and be really honest with ourselves this morning. And remember, there's no, no need, you'll not be sharing this or anything. So this is a time of quiet. So I would like you to ask yourself these questions. What might be filling our thoughts that leaves no room for God? And we could add into that what might be filling our time, our actions that leaves no room for God. What might we actually now need to strip away of ourselves in order to gain Christ and the joy that he offers? And are we prepared, like Paul, to renounce our pride in things that don't matter and in ourselves and turn our back on the things that we've identified we're putting our trust in? So I'm going to give us now some time to reflect, some time to repent if we need to, on anything that God brings to mind. And after that, Jeff's going to lead us in a prayer to surrender everything to God by placing your trust, your confidence wholly in God and relying totally on him. And then I believe we will know the deep joy of the Lord, which will be our strength and will speak to those who do not yet know Jesus Christ as Lord. So a time of quiet to reflect on those questions now.